you for listening to this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The Garden Fellowship is a new and exciting church located in Burlington, North Carolina. We invite you to learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Garden Fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org. Now, we invite you to worship God through the teaching of His Word. This is, I think, one of the hardest passages in the, in the Bible. This is, I think, um, the hardest parable to understand. And it is one that I personally remember many times struggling with this and trying to understand this properly and then just giving up and saying, I don't, I don't get it and moving on. This, pa- this parable has particularly two issues in it that cause us to think that Jesus is praising an unrighteous person for his unrighteousness and then commending to us to copy his unrighteousness. So we'll see those problems as we wrestle through this. And I think that we'll see um, that uh, the passage has some very, very satisfying solutions to it. So Luke chapter 16, this is a parable about money. Jesus told... Uh, about one one third of all of his parables were about money, and I'm no doubt you've often heard it said how often Jesus talks about money, how he talks about money more than he talks about heaven, he talks about money more than he talks about hell, and all these different things. And so we sort of have this picture of Jesus teaching about money in an, uh, a disproportionate way. But actually, if we listen to those who study so, uh, society and study thought patterns among people, we're told that the average person thinks about money about half of their waking hours. In some way, shape, or form, we're thinking about money that we have, money that we wish we had, money that we need, uh, money that we're going to spend, money that we just spent, what we need to do with this money. In some way, shape, or form, about half of our waking hours are involved, our thoughts are somehow involved with money in some way. So that it's estimated that for the average person, by the time we reach age 85, we have thought about money for 50 years. Now, if that's true, if that's anywhere close to being true, and we compare that to Jesus' teaching of about one-third of his teaching involved money, then we realize Jesus really didn't talk about money all that much at all compared to how much we think about money. So uh, we're going to listen this morning to Jesus' teaching about money. And we're going to apply it to our lives. And I think that we're going to read this morning being blessed by this. So Luke chapter 16, I'm going to begin just by reading. Luke chapter 16, I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 13. From verse 1, he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. 
He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, just beginning here from verse 1, we read that he says to his disciples, he's, so uh, this is in the middle of, right here at the end of the, the three parables that we studied last time of the three lost things. And he says this to his disciples, but this is not uh, a context in which Jesus is only speaking to his disciples because we're going to just look down to verse 14 and we see that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and then ridiculed him. So it's not as though this is a private conversation. This is something Jesus maybe is directing to his disciples, but as often is the case, he's saying something to this group of people intending for the other group of people to hear it also. So he says to his, his disciples, there was a rich man and this man we're going to see is very rich, who had a manager, and a manager, or we could say a steward, and this person was charged with managing or stewarding his business dealings and his business properties. Uh, the manager here would have been one that was, uh, he would hold a, maybe a higher position in society. He was not a slave. He was a, uh, in, uh, a trained person, an intelligent person, a person that's adept at agricultural dealings. And he is his manager. But charges were brought against him that this man was wasting the rich man's possession. So he was doing uh, maybe not even just a poor job at managing his property. He was doing a, um, uh, he was mismanaging his property in such a way that his property and his business dealings were being wasted. He's wasting his possessions. In verse 2, and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Um, so these charges are brought against him. We read from verse 1. Just um, on a side note, this really has nothing to do with the, the passage, but just something that's interesting about the passage. These, the charges are brought against him. Um, did she figure out the combination? The, yeah, you've got to turn right three times, left once, and then right again. One, and then, we're, we're trapped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going out the window. <laughs> It's getting worse, so I've, I've got to fix that. Anyway, um, just something interesting about the passage. Um, here's this manager that is managing the rich man's possessions, and charges are brought against him. That word, charges, are brought against him. That's the word um, diabolos. And you may recognize in that word something that you know, and it is diablo. Diablo is, um, in some languages, like, for example, Spanish, that is the word for Satan, diablo. Um, and I, I used to have a horse named Diablo, and he was well-named. But that, you know what, that, that word means literally 
the accuser. That's why Satan is called the accuser. In some languages, his, his name is Diablo in that way. So charges are brought against him. That reminds us of, of the one who is our accuser. He brings charges against us. And again, this really is not related to the passage at all. It's just an interesting thing to note. Um, I'm being reminded, um, the older I get, I'm being reminded that that role of the enemy is something that we far underestimate, that we don't spend nearly enough time recognizing that that is what he does, is he accuses us. He brings charges against us. Now, I know you've all heard the, the truth that is taught that, that uh, there is the Holy Spirit's work to convict, make us aware of sin, bring us under conviction, grant us repentance so that we experience forgiveness. But then there's also the work of Satan who accuses us. And I know you've heard the differences between those two things, that once we confess and repent of sin, then uh, it's, it's brought up no more in that accusing sort of way. But then when, the, when our enemy accuses us, then that's just sort of guilt heaped upon us. And the more I think I know Jesus and the older I get, the more aware I become that that is, it's no joke, that is what he does. He accuses and he tells us we are failures, we're spiritual failures. You're a failure as a father, you're a failure as a pastor, you're a failure as a husband. And the guilt doesn't let up. If you listen to that, it, just, it increases and it goes and go, because that is what he does. So again, this is not part of the passage, but it's just interesting to remember. As charges are brought against this, this uh, dishonest manager, that's the same thing the enemy does to us constantly. He brings charges against us and accuses us. So anyway, to move along in the passage, these charges are brought against him that he's wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management and you can no longer be manager. So he calls him on the carpet, says, I've, I've heard about this, about your uh, poor business dealings, your mismanagement of my property. So I want you to go and I want you to get the accounts. I want you, I want you to get the ledger and I want you to bring it here so that I can see how much you've lost me. And then after that, you're done. Which, by the way, this was the rich man's mistake. We probably are also aware of this, too. In business dealings, when someone is fired for mismanagement or whatever the case may be, even if you're just laid off. When someone is let go, when someone is fired, they're done right there. That's why when you see people that are you know, let go from big companies, they're escorted out the door right then. You don't stay and, and stay through the end of the day because, well, for one thing, you've probably got some pretty bad feelings now against your employer. For another thing, you've already lost your job, so what else, what else is going to happen to you? So... There's a good opportunity to sort of be bitter and maybe um, enact some revenge or something. Particularly, though, if you've been fired for mismanagement or uh, uh, you've been fired for impropriety in your job, then you need to be out the door right then. This rich man didn't do that. He made the mistake of saying to the, to the manager, go and get the ledgers, uh, sum all the ledgers up, total the ledgers up, bring them here, and we're going to meet, we're going to sit down, and I'm going to see how much you've lost me. And that was his mistake. So the manager then takes the ledgers, or takes the accounts, and he says to himself, what am I going to do? Since uh, he's taking the management away from me, verse 3, I'm not strong enough to dig. Digging is, you know, you've all always heard it said, and this is true, uh, 
a shovel is a, a real character forming tool, right? <laughs> there's, there's nothing that requires, or nothing, very few things that require more character than just working with a shovel all day. So he's not strong enough. He doesn't have the character to do that sort of work. Uh, he's already shown what sort of character he has. He's, he doesn't have the character to do this digging work. And he's ashamed to beg. Begging is beneath him. So he says, what am I going to do? Verse 4. Here I go. Here we are. I've decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he's thinking ahead. He realizes his job is over. He realizes that word of this is going to get out. He is going to have a hard time finding another job. So what's he going to do? He's going to spread some favors around. He's going to curry some favor among the villagers that he lives among. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. So here is this sort of a one-on-one conversation. He summons those people who owe his master some money. And one by one, he says to the first one, how much do you owe? He says, a hundred measures of oil, and that's no small debt. You may see a footnote at the bottom of of the page in your Bible that uh, a measure of oil, you may sometimes, especially if you read the King James, you may sometimes come across the word bath. A measure is a bath. Uh, Usually it's translated over to measure or something like that because we don't use bath in that way. But a bath or a measure was about eight and three quarters gallons. So he owes 875 gallons of oil to his master. Um, Quite a sum of olive oil or whatever type of oil it was. Um, Scholars tell us that that was about uh, three years, almost three years of wages for a working man. Um, About a thousand denarii would would have been the value of that. So this is no small sum of money. Someone has borrowed a hundred measures of oil. Uh, Typically, even today in the agricultural type business, it's common to make payments on loans at harvest time. That's oftentimes how agricultural business is done. Loans are made and repayment is made when the harvest comes in. So uh, it's not harvest time yet. When harvest time comes in, this is the amount that this particular person owes to the master. It's quite a bit. Three years wages for a working man. So he says, sit down quickly. You get the idea he doesn't have much time. Maybe there's half an hour. Maybe he's got 45 minutes before the master gets here. And they're going to sit down and look at the books and see what this has come to. So he says, quickly, we've got to do this fast. Take your bill, write 50 on it. I'll sign it. I'll notarize it. Once I sign it, then your debt then becomes 50. So he does that. He cuts his debt in half from a year and a half of working man's wages to, I'm sorry, from three years of working man's wages to a year and a half of working man's wages. So he has done this person... A tremendous favor. Um, the, uh, certainly the person who owes the money realizes what's going on here. He realizes that this manager is doing something underhanded. He's going to cooperate with, co- cooperate with it and go ahead and have his debt cut in half. And so now he has received a tremendous favor from the dishonest manager. And this culture, what that meant was, if you do something for me... I have to do something for you. In our culture today, we sort of have that same sort of mentality. If somebody does something for us, we sort of feel indebted to them. But to whatever degree we sense that in our culture is nothing compared to the Middle Eastern culture. Um, 
our neighbor, as you know, Ahmed, right across the street from Iraq. It's hard to describe how strong that is. If we do something for him, like, for example, we take a meal to him, he guaranteed, he will do the same thing back for us. Um, and that, I even said to him one time, we took a meal, and he says, he says okay, I'll, I'll, we'll bring you a meal tomorrow. Is that okay? We'll bring you one tomorrow. And, and I said something like, no, you don't have to. You don't have. And he said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I have to. You do something for me, I have to do something back for you. So now this person is indebted to the dishonest manager, um, and he does the same thing again. We get the idea that he does it to all the master's debtors. He calls in the next one, says, how much is your bill? My bill uh, is 100 measures of wheat. That would be about 1,000 bushels of wheat. We are told, scholars tell us, that, uh, that, that it would take about 100 acres of land under the uh, farming technology of Jesus' day. It would take about 100 acres of land to produce 100 bushels of wheat. So that's a tremendous debt. Uh, that would equal about a 10 years worth of working man's um, income, working man's salary. So that's a tremendous debt. So he says to this person, take your bill, cross out 10 and write 8. Or cross out, uh, cross out 100 and write 80, I'm sorry. So he reduces his bill by 20%. Um, and then verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So there's sort of one issue in the passage is the, the commendation from the master to, uh, to the manager for his shrewdness. How do we understand that? And how does this fit into what Jesus is trying to tell us? How in the world is Jesus going to draw a spiritual lesson out of a story of a dishonest manager cheating the owner of his pro- out of his property? If... Um, if you read the common, uh, commentaries about this and how people wrestle with this and try to make this seem as though some, there's something commendable about what the manager has done, um, you'll find it's almost... Um, people go to extraordinary lengths to try to make this sound like something that it's not. Uh, maybe there's some details that we missed. Um, I've read where people will say uh, perhaps what the manager has done is he has forfeited his commission on these debts. And so by forfeiting his commission, he's reduced the debt to, a, to an amount that the people can repay. And so he's forsaken what he would have made and said, well, okay, I've lost my job. Here's what I can do. Uh, I won't charge any commission for these deals. And now uh, the owner can get his pay. And so maybe that was commendable on the part of the manager. Um, the only problem with that is that's not in there at all. And that would have been quite an important detail that Jesus left. That's no small detail there. Uh, but Jesus makes no mention of that. Or um, here's one thing that I've thought, and I've read other people that thought perhaps this was also what happened as well, that, that maybe the dishonest manager met with these people who were unable to pay. And he worked a deal with them and says, well, uh, you owe a hundred, and you can't pay a hundred um, until you know maybe eight months from now. But can you pay fifty right now? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, I'll pay fifty now, and therefore he recoups some money for the for the uh, rich man earlier rather than later. And I thought, well, maybe maybe that's what he was doing too. He was reducing the bill to an amount that they could pay quickly, 
and somehow helping the rich owner in that way. But again, that's, that would be a pretty big detail that Jesus left out. That's just making things up to try to make it sound as though the dishonest manager wasn't exactly how Jesus described him, which is dishonest. Jesus has point blank said this man is dishonest, but he's commended by the rich owner. So how do we understand that? And I think that the way that, that goes is we, we look at what the rich owner commended him for. He doesn't commend him for his hard work. He doesn't commend him for his resourcefulness. He commends him for his shrewdness. So I think it went something like this. You son of a gun. I see what you've done. I see. Nothing I can do about this now, but I see what you've done. You have the final laugh. right? I, I think it was something like that. It wasn't sort of this praising him. Oh, you're such a shrewd person. I hate to lose you. It was a you blankety blank so and so. You gotta hand it to me. I gotta hand it to you. You got the last laugh on me. And I think that's what happens is he sees the shrewdness with what he has done and says, There you go. He has curried for himself a now a tremendous amount of favor among the people that live there. We don't know how many debtors Jesus had in mind as he was making up the story. But however many it was, he has curried a tremendous amount of favor within the town, within the village, and a lot of people now owe him. So he says, um, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The manager, and here's one of the keys, the manager sees a future that he doesn't like, and he uses the resources at his availability to change the future that he didn't like into a better one. That's a key to kind of take that, put it in the back of our minds. We're going to bring that out a little bit later and, uh, and uh, turn that over in our minds. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For, and listen to what Jesus says now, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So one of the issues with the passage is how this rich owner, and by connection Jesus, seem to be commending the dishonest manager. That's the minor problem. The major problem in the passage is that Jesus seems to be saying to us, uh, you know, people in this world buy friends with their money. And they're a lot shrewder than the children of, of the kingdom of God. So you can learn from them. You can learn from the people of this world how they use money to buy friends. You need to do the same thing I tell you, I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with that to try to understand what Jesus is saying to us. Um, I know of nowhere else that Jesus tells us to make friends, that friends are so important to, to make friends, and then particularly to use unrighteous wealth to do so. So let's, um, let's kind of take this apart and uh, see if we can discern what Jesus is saying to us.
first of all, let's understand the word that's being used here, unrighteous wealth. The word there is the word mammon. You've heard of that word. In fact, that word's used throughout the passage. Numerous times, I should have counted it, but numerous times in the passage that word mammon is used. Mammon is an Aramaic word that was just transliterated over into Greek and transliterated over into English. There is no English word mammon. It's an Aramaic word. And it means, you probably have heard that it means money. But it really means a lot more than money. It means money. It means currency. It means wealth. It means possessions. It means that which can create wealth, such as land or um, machinery or tools or uh, uh, a loom that can weave cloth or a herd of sheep that can produce wealth. It means not only wealth, but that which is capable of bringing wealth. A good word for us is earthly resources. That, I think, is broad enough to cover the concept of mammon. Um, not only is it money and uh, what's, what may be in a savings account or a 401k or uh, a credit available on a credit card or uh, whatever that may be, but it's also a home or it's also a job or it's skills that can get you a job. If you lose a job, well, I have these skills that I can go and get another job or I have these resources or I have these tools. I have these things that are earthly resources. And we could even, I think it's broad enough to even include time. Our time is a resource that can accumulate wealth for us. So it's a really broad word. So that word is used throughout the passage. Jesus says, um, I say to you, the children of this age, the sons of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Because, according to the story, a son of this age just used mammon, wasn't necessarily money, but it was a debt that he was in a position to forgive. He used mammon to make friends. And the making of those friends made an unpleasant future to be more pleasant for him. Jesus says the people of this age are more shrewd about doing that than the sons of light. We need to see this example and we need to be more like the dishonest manager in the sense of what he has done. That's what Jesus is saying. He used um, mammon to do this. So he says, verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. There's mammon again. So that's a sticking point. Unrighteous wealth. What does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean money that we gain through unrighteous means? Maybe we steal, we cheat, we lie, and that brings money into our possession. And I don't think that that's what Jesus means at all. I think what Jesus is saying, unrighteous wealth, he's just saying the things of this age, the things of this world, money is an element of fallen society. Just like the other earthly resources that we have. There are elements of fallen society. They are part of what will be burned up when this world is recreated. So Jesus is saying, use the earthly resources 
available to us in the fallen society in which we live to do what? To make friends. Now, again, we know of lots of people that use money to make friends, and it's never something that the Bible has seemed to commend to us. So why would Jesus be doing so now? Let's look carefully at what he says. Uh, so that, here's the reason, so that when it fails, when mammon fails, which it will, right? Earthly resources will come to an end. They will fail us at some point. So when that fails, they, who are the they? They are the friends that you made by means of earthly resources. They may receive you, where? Into the eternal dwellings. Now, who can receive us into eternal dwellings? Pardon? I didn't think they could. Well, it depends on where they are. Uh. Yeah. If they are able to receive us into eternal dwellings, then they must be in the eternal dwelling that we're going to. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. This dishonest manager saw a future that was unpleasant. He used earthly resources to change his situation and make his earthly future more pleasant. How much more should the sons of the kingdom of God use earthly resources for the spread of the gospel, for the conversion of the lost, so that you have made friends that will receive you into the eternal dwelling when you get there? You see what he's saying? There, there's a million, there's more than a, there are millions of ways that we, as the church, can and have in the past used earthly resources for the furtherance of the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, this is, this is a favorite way for the Jewish rabbis to teach, to make this comparison from the lesser to the greater. You hear it, it's all the time in the Bible, okay? And it goes like this, if this were true, if this is true, how much more is this true? That happens all the time. Jesus says, uh, if it's true that uh, an unrighteous judge will eventually give justice to the, to the widow that won't leave him alone, then how much more will God give justice, right? That sort of thing is all the time in the Bible. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, if this is true, if people of this age use earthly resources to improve their earthly future, how much more should the people of God use earthly resources to improve an eternal future. So here's a reminder for us. When we sing the song, when we all get to heaven, right? If we are in Christ, we all get to heaven. But it's not the same experience for everybody. The Bible lets us know this, that, that the experience of eternity is not the same for all people. According to our faithfulness here, according to the life we've lived here, there are rewards that will vary in degree to all of us who are there. Uh, when we reach that eternal state, when we're welcomed into that eternal state, not all of us are going to have the same welcoming committee. Some of us are going to get there and maybe have uh, a welcoming committee that's, that's, that's quite small. Others may get there and find that there are thousands of people that meet them and say, you don't know me. This is the first time we've met. But I just want you to know I'm here 
in part because of you. I'm here in part because you were faithful to support so-and-so and they brought me the gospel and I heard it and I believed. So I want you to know that part of the reason I'm here is because of you. And, and there will be those who reach that eternal state and there may be thousands upon thousands who have that story. You don't know me, but you did this or you did that. And that was part of what God used to get me here. And I just want to thank you for that. There may be others that get there and have no welcoming committee. The thief on the cross would have had no welcoming committee in that way. Jesus says, if it is true that people of this age know how to use earthly resources to make friends that will improve their future, and their future is only a few decades, how much more should the sons of light use earthly resources to improve your eternal future. And so that is what Jesus is saying to us. That in this amazing, almost unbelievable sort of way, God makes us stewards, just like the the manager in the story, he makes us stewards of his property, of his resources. And he says to us, I want, here's the the really good part. He says to us, I want you to use my stuff to make your future better. And the point of the parable is, if those who don't know God, who, when they think of the future, they think of the next five or 10 or 20 years. And after that, you know what? They're going to go on living forever, but they don't think about that. That's not on their minds. If those who, who, for them, the future is 15 years, if it's this important to them to use what they have to improve their future, how much more should it be important to you? You know how important we're told our future is here on earth? You know, it's retirement with 401k, with, you know, um, the older you get, the more you sort of start thinking about that. And there's this whole retirement thing. There's this magical age of 65 where you're supposed to stop working and, and then have income and everything. And all of that is, what are we talking? Maybe a few decades? And it's done. It's over. And yet people will work their whole lives to make that more comfortable. Jesus, how much exponentially more should you work to make an eternity more comfortable, more satisfying, more appealing, more joyful? Again, like we've said before, that's not to say that heaven is not perfectly satisfying and fulfilling and joyful for everyone who is there. But it is to say that everyone's not on an equal plane in heaven. Everyone is not receiving the same rewards. So, Jesus tells this parable. And then this is one of the few parables. Jesus often tells parables and doesn't even apply them. He just says, boom, here's the parable. You think about this yourself. Sometimes he gives an application. 
in this instance, he spends as much time applying the parable as he did telling it. And he has, some people have found as many as eight applications. I think that it's clear to see at least four applications from what Jesus has to say here. And the first one we see in verse 9. Um, I phrased it this way in your notes. Jesus is saying to us, wisely steward God's earthly resources in order to secure eternal friends. And again, that's, that's one of those things that if Jesus hadn't said that, and I was up here saying, God wants you to use your earthly resources to make friends, then you would, you would question why you're here. But fortunately, Jesus said this. I'm not saying this. He says, wisely stewards steward God's earthly resources to do everything that you can while here on earth to populate heaven. And by doing so, the implication is our eternity will be more pleasurable, will be more joyful, will be better the more souls that are populating it. So, uh, again, I'm not messing with the sovereignty of God here. I'm not claiming that it's up to us and our use, our wise use of God's resources to save people. God does the saving. It's His sovereign work. But in this fantastic, almost too good to believe way, God says to us, here's my resources. You take my resources to make your future better. Just let that sink in for a moment. Because I think that's incredible. God, He would be good to say to us, you know what, while you're here on earth, work, earn money, use that money for the kingdom, and then that'll make your eternity better. He goes much further than that and says to us, I'm going to give you my property and make you the manager of my property so that your future is far better. That's an incredible, incredible thought. Okay, so that's the first thing I see from verse 9. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or mammon, so that when it, is, when it fails, when the next life comes, they, those who are populating the eternal kingdom, in part because of your faithfulness with God's resources in this life, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. Then verse 10, I see another application here. I put it like this. Faithfulness is demonstrated by circumstances. Faithfulness is not determined by, by circumstances. And this is an important point to grasp. Faithfulness is not determined by circumstances. Faithfulness is demonstrated by circumstances. Listen to what Jesus says. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. In other words... Your faithfulness or your dishonesty has nothing to do with how much you have to be faithful or dishonest with. I have heard numerous times people say something to the effect, if I had more, I would give more. I wish I had more to give to God. We hope one day to be in a place where we can if you get some debts paid off, have a little extra money, and then we can give to God. No, you won't. No, you won't. If you don't give to Him now, 
when you have little, then neither will you give to him when you have a lot. It is as plain and as simple as that. If you are faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. If you are stingy with a little, then you'll be stingy with a lot. The widow had two pennies, but she gave it all. The Pharisees and Mark's gospel, Jesus lets us know, you are robbing from God in order to save for yourself. Repeatedly we see um, statistics will show us that the majority of charitable giving is not done by the rich. If, if we were to look at the total dollars given to all charitable causes in the U.S., the bulk of it comes from the middle class and below. It is simply not true that the more you have, the more you'll give. If you are faithful with what you have now, then you'll be faithful with more. If you're not faithful with what you have now, then neither will you be faithful with more. Jesus, I think, is saying to us, giving to the kingdom is never a matter of what you have. It's only a matter of what has captured your heart. If eternity has captured your heart, you will give to eternity people will find a way to buy what they want. Have you found that to be true? If you want something, you'll find a way to get it. Within reason, I'm not talking about, you know, if you really have your heart set on a Ferrari, you know, you're just going to find a way to get a Ferrari. I mean, within reason. If you really want something, you'll find a way to get it. And so if you say, well, I just don't have money for this, or I don't have money for that, what that usually means is, I don't want that enough to find a way to get it. Same thing is true with the kingdom. If you want the kingdom enough, you will find a way to give to it. It's not a matter of having enough to give to God's kingdom. It's a matter of what your heart perspective sees as valuable and sees as important. It's a matter of what you desire. And if that is what you desire, you will give to the kingdom. If it's not what you desire, it doesn't matter how much disposable income you have, you won't. Jesus says, if you are faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. If you're not faithful with a little, then it doesn't matter how much I give you. You're not going to be faithful with that either. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, which will, who will entrust you to the true riches? In other words, if God can't trust you with earthly trinkets, how is he going to trust you with true riches? If God can't trust you to steward these things here on earth, which are here today and gone tomorrow, like Peter says, I mean, we're like grass. Or James says, this life is, is a, like a vapor. You know, it's like this puff of smoke that you see and it's gone. If God can't trust you with trinkets, during this vapor of a life, then how will He trust you with an eternal kingdom? As Jesus says to you, you're heirs. What Paul says in Romans 8, we're, we're co-heirs of the kingdom. And so God has given us this opportunity here with things that will burn up to say, here, 
Show me your faithfulness in these things. Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I can't help but think right there of Eli. Remember Eli? The priest in the Old Testament who was faithful to God, but his sons weren't. And so here was a man who was faithful with God's kingdom. But then... Imagine being one of the people that's watching this take place and, and you see Eli and you know there's a man that's faithful to God. But you know what? His sons aren't. What's going to happen when his sons come into power? Or, or just read, for example, read some British history of all the monarchs and, and you'll read stories of good kings whose heir to the throne everybody knew was a scoundrel. And they would say, what's going what's gonna to happen? This guy is a scoundrel with the kingdom that's not even his yet. What's going to happen when it's his kingdom? When he can do what he wants? And that's the, the image that I have, what Jesus is saying here, is if you can't be faithful with my stuff, then how am I going to give it to you? How am I going to give you the kingdom and make you an heir to this kingdom when you haven't proved faithful even before I gave it over to you. That's the image that I give you. So giving to the kingdom is never a, a matter of what you have. It's always a matter of perspective. If your heart is captivated by eternity, you will find a way to use your mammon to invest in that eternal kingdom. That's the second thing I see. The third thing I see, and this is plain... You hardly even need me to point it out to you. But Jesus says that the kingdom of God has no divided hearts. He says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So we get the point there, but I wonder if we get it as forcefully as Jesus was saying it. In the original Greek, you've heard us talk about this before. Um, there were not... There was not one word for servant and one word for slave. That was one word. Okay, So the word, I think the key word here is serve. You can't serve two masters. It is the same word as be a slave to. And I think that that gets closer to what Jesus is saying here. You cannot be a slave to God and a slave to mammon. So think about the relationship of a slave. Um, in our culture, we can serve two masters, can't we? You can have two employers. You can work two jobs. You can have multiple people in your life that make demands of your time. And you can serve multiple people in that way, right? Sometimes it's frustrating. I've, hardly anything to me is more frustrating than having two people both demanding something that I can't, I can't deliver all you need and all you need to. That's, that's tremendously frustrating to me, probably you too. But I don't think that's the force of what Jesus is getting at. He's not talking about a part-time job. He's talking about ownership. You cannot be owned by two masters. Now, what, what would it mean to be a slave? It means your time is not yours. Your time is owned by another. And so this, again, is, is one of those things that's so obvious that we would read, well, yeah, duh. Nobody can own me 
while somebody else owns me. I can only be owned by one. And so how foolish to think, well, I could be partially owned by two masters. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. You cannot be owned by two. In other words, both God and mammon require all of you. God's not looking for part-time slaves. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that we be wholly, completely devoted to God? Why is it such a big deal? It's a big deal because anything less lies about God. Anything less than wholly devoted to God, without reservation, anything else lies about God and about His worth. Think of it this way. If if you were able to love, worship, be devoted to, be dedicated to God 100%. How close would that come to what God is worthy of? Does it even compare? Did you follow? In other words, if you were able every moment of your life to be like the greatest commandment, loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and wholly devoted to Him every moment, does that come close to what God is worth? It doesn't, right? But it's everything. It's, it's all I've got here, right? Um, so if we were to say, okay, God, uh, I'm going to give you 99.9%. You follow? That's infinitely infinitely less than what God is worth. If God is worthy of all of our love and infinitely more, and we say to Him, well, I'm going to keep back just a little bit for myself, then that is an infinite insult to the God who is worth everything. Think of it like this. Here's an illustration I came up with that, that hopefully will... Help us to sink in. Pretend. It's going to be a real stretch of your imagination. Work that imagination this morning and pretend that I own a mansion. 5,000 square foot mansion situated on... What's that? You do own a mansion, baby. That's paid for. I own a mansion. There's no lien on it. It's 5,000 square feet of perfection situated on 100 pristine acres. Fully furnished. Let's go to 10,000 square feet. Sure. Sure. If you're going to do it. Perfect. Five car garage. Luxury vehicles in every garage bay. I mean, this this is the works. And I were to say to you, I'm going to give you this property. I'm going to give you this mansion in exchange for whatever's in your pocket. And so you you reach in your pocket and you pull out a lint and you pull out a $10 bill. 
that's all I got is here's $10, a $10 bill. And, and I said, okay, I will give you this for whatever's in your pocket, all of it. And you say to me, wow, that, that's, that's such an incredible deal. Um, but you know what? Do you have three ones? Can, could you give me three ones back? I'm, I'm really thirsty. I'd love, love to stop by the Dollar General and get a soda on the way over to my new mansion. Does that kind of get at the picture of saying to God, you are worthy. But, okay, let me keep a little bit of this. Let me keep that for myself. Or let me keep this for myself. The $10 for a mansion is laughable. But if it was all we had, and that was the deal, all you've got, whatever's in your pocket, I'll take it in exchange for that. And our response is, Okay, but I'm just really thirsty. Can I, can I stop and, and buy a bottle of water? Can you give me some change for my $10? It's like, no, deal's off. Maybe that gets a little bit at what Jesus is saying here. No one can be owned by two masters. If our God says to us, here is a mansion. I'll give this to you for whatever you've got. Now, what you've got is, does not pay for the mansion. What you've got is not a fair price. But I'll give you this for whatever you've got. And we say back to him, okay, almost. But that is an insult to, to the living God who offers us a trade that can't even be put into words. It's an insult to him beyond all proportion. Now, the thing about this is, I doubt any of us would say, you know what, um, yeah, you're right. I give God 99% and I keep back 1% for me. We don't. We all say, it's my intention. I want to give God 100% of me. I know I often don't, but that's what I want. That's what we would say, right? We wouldn't ever sort of admit to ourselves, yeah, 90% me, or, or, or 90% God, 10% me, right? It's not in us, it's not in our fallen nature to see that and admit up to it and recognize it. So I think that that's why we have verse 14. This isn't technically part of the passage, but it is part of the passage. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, lovers of mammon, heard these things, and they ridiculed him. Lovers of money hate this teaching. And so if we hear this, and we're revolted in our heart to hear, you know, God requires everything of Elliot. God requires everything of Christina. If that is somehow distasteful to us, then we are a lover of mammon. We are trying to serve two masters. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? We all, I think, preachers in particular, there's sort of the, the old adage of um, how everybody hates to hear sermons about money. And I know how abusive that can be and how that can be really perverted. But if the teaching of the New Testament that says to us, Everything that you have is God's. 
It's not a matter of what percentage of what you have that you want to throw back into his plate. It's all his. All of you is his. He has a right to every part of you. You are either his slave or your mammon's slave. If that teaching is something that sort of gets stuck right here, we're trying to swallow it and get stuck right here, then that's a good clue for us that we are a lover of mammon. And we are really serving mammon and trying to look like that we're serving God. But if we receive that, and our reaction is, yes, that is truth. I wish I lived that way, but my heart wants that to be how I live. If that is is your reaction, then I would say Jesus' teaching for us is that we are not a slave of mammon. We are a slave of God, although sometimes we may act like we're slaves of mammon. We hope you enjoyed this podcasted message from the Garden Fellowship. The purpose of the Garden Fellowship Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. We hope you were blessed by this message. You can learn more about our church by visiting our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash garden fellowship or by visiting our website at gardenfellowship.org.